Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, many thanks to Armand and the uh, committee for inviting me. I have to say, the principal has uh, stolen my thunder in my first point, uh, but never mind. There we are. Um, it shows he was right. <laughs> it is uh, a great pleasure. Is it, can everybody at the back hear me? Because we couldn't make the, uh, uh, the, the internal mic work, but it's okay, is it? Good. It is a, a, a great pleasure to have the opportunity to offer my small contribution to honouring Don's memory, and a uh, particular pleasure as well in that it gives me a cast-iron excuse to indulge myself in theory. And I must say that the, uh, the reading I have been doing recently, you know, sort of late at night when I finish with the spreadsheets, has been just such a pleasure, such a pleasure. I'd like to start with a little diversion, uh, which is actually programmatic. You may or may not, you are indeed aware of, because you've just been told about it, the OUP monograph series, Oxford Studies in Classical Literature and Gender Theory, which, as you now know, I edit with David Conston. A list of the titles so far is an appendix to the handout. The handout is just isn't terribly important. It's just for you to have something to kind of look at if you're getting bored or... Um, you know, because people want to hand out. Um, what I doubt you do know, however, is that this series was actually Don's idea. Um, um, Don and I, one time, were bemoaning what seemed to us to be the rather stalled state, this is in the late 90s, um, the stalled state of feminist reading of classical literature, when Don suggested that we might together propose a series to OUP to be dedicated to, uh, to the promotion of such readings. The series would emphasise the close reading of literature rather than cultural studies, be rigorous in its standards, and an issue at the time uh, was whether academic rigour was a manifestation of phallocentrism. We decided it wasn't. <laughs> so that's fine then. Um, and would be particularly interested in texts which have not traditionally uh, been subjected to feminist readings. So, ideally, in theory, no Greek tragedy, no Roman elegy. We didn't quite manage to hold to that, but uh, that was the idea. One thing we didn't manage to thrash out during that uh, conversation, on a bench in Cambridge it was, I remember it very distinctly, was the place of masculinity within the series. Don was sympathetic to my concern that gender was displacing women and masculinity was looming too large in the study of gender. But we didn't work out exactly how, how uh, the role it should play. As is obvious, Don was not able to pursue the matter further, but soon after his death, I decided that I must take the idea forward. I quickly got the support of Hilary O'Shea at OUP and found a wonderful contributor, a co-editor in David Constant. The concession that Hilary persuaded me to make to saleability was to substitute the word gender for feminist reading, which I would actually have preferred. In the intervening years, we've published several excellent volumes, but I have been disappointed at how few of the volumes and how few of the uh, proposals that we have, and we have turned an awful lot, lot down actually, um, uh, have been written by British scholars, whether that's by birth or by uh, a place of, of work. And that brings me to the second programmatic aspect of this diversion, which is the relatively, it seems to me, penurious state of feminist readings of classical literature in this country since the millennium. 
you could say then that this anecdote forms part of a narrative of decline, uh, which during the preparation for this paper has not infrequently bubbled around the surface of my consciousness. In fact, at one point, I wondered about uh, a subtitle or what I think is wrong with classics today, but I <laughs> decided against it. So, on that cheerful note, I had the good fortune, so it seemed to me, to be a student in the heady days of the 1980s, PhD 1988, when classics suddenly caught up with 60 years of literary theory, or at least that was my impression, um, and then as a young lecturer in the 1990s, when for once Latin took the lead in critical matters, promoting and developing intertextuality as the dominant mode of uh, interpretation. Postmodern critical moves, which had seemed outrageous in the mid-80s, became almost domesticated by the late 90s. What since then? Well, I'm not the only person to have wondered what has happened to theory since the millennium, and to think it is time we reflected again on the processes and the assumptions underlying our practice, uh, whether or not that leads to any kind of paradigm shift. Today, I want to concentrate on an issue which I still regard as being a matter of abiding importance, um, which is what we think we are doing when we offer an interpretation of a classical poem. It's part of the question of what we think we are doing when we attempt to communicate, but um, uh, it, it has particular problems around it as well. You'll not be surprised, you'll, you'll immediately see that this is a version of the death or otherwise of the author, implied or otherwise. Uh, but at one level, it's just a plea for a renewed commitment to our self-awareness as critics. So, going back. When I was an undergraduate, the standard view among those who taught me, with the honourable exception of Duncan Kennedy, I must say, was that there was only one reading and that that was what the author intended. Even when I moved to Cambridge for the uh, postgraduate work, there was a rearguard action being fought in which one respected scholar said in a discussion, I've got a very strong memory of this, that he wanted to defend the right of a Latin poet to mean only one thing by one word. Um, well, all I can say to that is that Plato clearly knew better, with all the caveats about what better and clearly. While things moved on quickly with regard to further voices, and um, further, further voices are continuing to make themselves heard, the idea that we are, what we are aiming to do is to reconstruct the author's intention has had a rather troubled and interesting ongoing biography as a critical idea. This, to simplify, is the perennial question of whether meaning resides in the author or the reader with all, obviously, the variables of intentionalism, multiplicity, and so on, alongside the question of what we think an author is. In a nutshell, it seems to me that scholars now, by and large, in the new millennium, pay lip service to a theory that would deny simplistic intentionalism, in that they would say that meaning is not wholly constrained by the author's intention, but in practice, tend to structure their comments as if what they are saying were indeed coming directly from the author. So at one level, what I want to suggest is um, an awareness that, if you accept this as a view at all, 
to be more aware of it, that the author's intention is a construct, a way of talking about literature. But there's another level at which I want to suggest that our adherence in practice is to an intentionalism of a form that cannot be true and is constraining our readings in a way that I personally find illogical. Given that, whatever the author meant, we cannot possibly reconstruct it, the past is a foreign country, this means that even if we subscribe to the view that it would be polite if we were to allow the author privileged rights over the meaning of his work, we have no hope of inviting him to exercise those rights. When we take his name in vain, we do so as a shorthand, a metaphor. I have to say, I'm not sure whether I am using metaphor in the sense authorised by Luckoff and Johnson. Um, in, uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that I actually understand philosophy in the flesh, uh, but I haven't finished it, so perhaps it will all become magically clear when I get to the end. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the very brief version of that is, is that... Uh, um, that the, what they seem to be saying is that the thing doesn't exist, it only exists, it's, it's only the, the brain's categories that exist. Um, uh, now, that's not to say you deny the material, well, hmm, or is it to say that you deny the material existence of the person who wrote a particular poem? I'm not sure. Uh, but certainly what it is, is to say that ascribing the work to an author is a metaphor in that sense. So, sometimes this metaphor of the author is so lively that I feel as though an ancient poet has put a line into a poem just for me. In fact, they do that regularly, you know. I'm sure they do for you too. Um, they, they, they put things in there just because they know I'm going to be there reading it and enjoying it 2,000 years later. It's very kind of them. It's obviously a fantasy. But, on the other hand... The, the author did put things in the text so, to which I am responding, so what actually does constrain my response? I personally find the, the, the Stanley Fish answer of the interpretive communities very plausible. A right reading is one which is persuasive to others or is otherwise worth repeating. Uh, but it is worth, I think, going a little further about the boundaries. I come back to that the question of how far can we go with the boundaries in a moment. I think the idea of a controlling author, whether or not made in our own image, seems to be attractive to critics. We have to have this way of speaking because, it, well, for apart from anything else, it would be very hard to speak otherwise. Um, I think we should be explicit, though, that what we're doing is figurative. Uh, how we do this without weighing down every sentence we write with cautions and caveats, I, I don't know. Um, but if I could find a way of sort of, uh, 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 of, of using the metaphor in a, in, a, in a way that is self-aware, I think that would be good. Well, now, even if it were not hinted by the handout, I'm sure people would be thinking about Derrida on Plato and the problem of writing as opposed to speech with that marvellous image of the written word as an orphan child cut off from his, its author father. So, indeed, right. But it is also worth thinking about the silent statues when, when we talk, or write, quite rightly, about interrogating a text. Uh, it's important to remember that writing, though orphaned additionally, 
has not lost all the genetic material that in it inherited from its author father. Just to say it's orphaned doesn't mean that it is actually you know, an egg, not a child, for example. You know, it's, it's not a completely different thing. For all the antiquity and imaginative power of the image of the author father, um, I think we should, I would like to, to, to suggest that the image is itself, I'm not the only one of course to suggest this, is a constructed thing. Um, uh, and a constructed thing considerably influenced by the, uh, by the uh, uh, romantic view of an author. And indeed, actually, probably, uh, I'm just summarising a little bit here, by the 20th century notion of the romantic notion of the author. And I think that is, uh, which perhaps is, when you, <laughs> which perhaps is a little bit of a straw man, um, as is often the way with constructs, um, uh, but it is still uh, affecting the, uh, our understanding of the author. Um, and one of the elements of that is work that has been done uh, recently, for example, on Shakespeare as uh, not so much a genius, but a genius at teamwork, and that much authorship is actually a communal activity. Um, and uh, you know, even Horace will say that, Ars Poetica, uh, with the role of the critical friends who are telling you, uh, you know, uh, helping you in the construction of poetry. Uh, I would like to offer, as uh, also an example of this, the topos of acknowledgments. Now, I do think there's a difference between um, different kinds of discourses between literature and criticism. They're not, I think, the same kind. Of, well, they're obviously not the same kind of discourse. Uh, but... The topos of, thank you very much to X, Y, Z, da, 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 all mistakes remain my own. Now, I think partly what that's doing is saying, um, I'm taking credit. Or we, we, say, we say it as, all errors are, of course, mine. But we're really also saying, although I've got to thank all these other people, I'm really saying, this is by me. Um, uh, um, uh, but I'm doing it politely. Um, okay. Whether the problem, or despite all these problems of singularity uh, in ownership of texts, or whether the owners, owners, authors, that's what I meant, authors' last word, thoughts, or th first thoughts should be more important, uh, there is one area of classical scholarship where intentionalism is particularly necessary, um, and that is in establishing a text. I find it easy to say, I'm comfortable to say, at least for Virgil or Ovid, that we are attempting to reconstruct what the poet, or at least the poet and his slave and his friends and other collaborators, what they wrote and authorised to be copied, well, maybe, uh, that's very much thinking in terms of modern proofs. I have to say, I'm not at all sure that that's the case for Plautus, um, even though textual criticism might have, you know, has a special... Um, uh, special rights over intentionalism, I would think that um, uh, the sort of fetishization of the author may be a contributory factor in uh, worries about interpolation. This happens in Shakespeare studies as well as in um, uh, uh, Plautus. So I'm much, much less happy to say with people like Zwierlein that our goal is to work out what Plautus personally wrote, if he personally wrote anything. Um, in fact, I even want to go so far as to say that what happened in the first production 
is a historical question, not a literary question. Um, okay. Once we've got our OCT, a high proportion of a text is of stable meaning. If we invoke the confident uh, speaker of the language, as implied readers are uh, uh, it's often described as, you know, the confident reader of the language who knows nothing else. It's very hard to imagine such a person, actually. Uh, but uh, there we are. That's, that's how it's often described. Um, much of syntax and, sorry, most of syntax and much of vocabulary is broadly fixed. Um, our author, singular or otherwise, certainly meant something uh, by his or very occasionally her words, which we can more or less reproduce, uh, no ant uh, by translation and paraphrase. No anti-intentionalist should ignore this fact. Uh, indeed, Wimsot uh, and Beardsley don't ignore this fact either, um, uh, though that, that authors have intentions, though I love Wimsot, Wim I can't say that word, Wimsot, uh, um, archly points out that authors may not necessarily have realised their intention, have, have achieved it. They might, after all, have intended to produce a literary classic, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily succeeded in producing a literary classic. Slightly cheating, but it's a nice point anyway. But to give the spurious impression of, uh, of precision, in the 10% that isn't fixed, or uh, in, the, in the significance we assign to the message conveyed through the vocabulary and syntax, that's where the interest, and indeed much of the point, of reading texts um, uh, consists. Okay. Once we have a text which we recognise as literary, recognise as asking for an interaction which is more than simply repetition, we hit the need to construct authors and readers in order to make sense of it. And among the most creative ways of dealing with this has been the various implied things that came through the uh, 20th century, implied readers, implied authors, and so on. Um, and there is a bit of um, sort of updating of the bibliography on the handout for that. It's interesting to note, though, it would be easy to place, and I think sort of, Classics has tended to place the author on the side of control and the reader on the side of freedom, of multiplicity. But actually, both sides of this debate, if that's a way of putting it, can actually both be used to proliferate and to control meaning. Um, and, uh, Bart, in his uh, um, in very provocative and great work, um, uh, uh, talk, talks about this. He talks about the critic as the high priest of the author God. He calls victory to the critic, he says, ironically. Um, case of the reader as controller uh, rather than proliferator of meaning. On the other hand, the critic cannot hold on to any degree of singularity which the uh, author perhaps can, at least poses as being a singularity, whereas readers have inherent multiplicity, which rather undermines their authority. But for me, the most pertinent soundbite from Bart uh, comes in his reinstatement of the author whom he has killed as the object of desire. In the text, in a way, I desire the author. I need his figure as he needs mine. I think this is something of what I mean by the metaphor of authority. Okay, what difference does it make to the text 
to the interpretation of the text to know whether it really is or is not by the, by the same person as another text. This could be a test case. You know, if you're saying, if, if I'm saying, which I'm actually not, but if I were to be saying that um, that meaning exists only in the reader and that the author has nothing to do with it, it oughtn't to matter whether a text is by the whether text A is by the same person as text B, because uh, if, if, as long as it's reader A, that wouldn't matter. So does it matter whether a text really is by the same person as another text? I think it probably does, actually. I think the case of Sulpicia is perfect here, as has been shown by Matilda Scoey uh, in, in her book, showing how the interpretation of the poems of Sulpicia through the years have been so different depending on the authors, the author of the criticism, that is, the, the critic's belief, as to whether the poem was by a man or a woman. So that, I find that is um, a, 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 a very interesting. So in that case, it does matter a great deal whether uh, the, the text is by the same person. It seems this is a fascinating, enlightening topic in the history of scholarship and of feminism. I want, nonetheless, to hold on to the sense that Sulpicia is a metaphor Indeed, I would say that for a woman to acquire metaphorical status is quite a coup in the feminist battle for the symbolic order. I'm sure we are driven, we are, I certainly have been, I remember the 90s we were very driven by a strong desire to hear an authentic female voice. But that interpretation is, is still an act of reading. It is, uh, it, do we really think, perhaps we do think, that it's more likely that a poem will be reflecting a real female voice, and that's a very strong ob object of desire for us, is a real female voice, if it was authored by someone of female gender? So, is the political importance of, re of releasing a woman's voice so great that it should be allowed to bypass the critical police? Or... Does the move to assign authenticity to a woman's voice uh, at some abs more, more absolute level than we acknowledge for male poets perform a chauvinist rather than a liberatory act? And I think that's a in very interesting problem for, uh, for uh, the criticism of, uh, well, for feminist criticism, let's put it like that. Um, I know. If, if we want to say that a woman's voice is so important to get at a woman's voice that we're going to give, make her real in a way that a poet, a male poet, is metaphorical, I suspect that might actually be chauvinist rather than liberatory. But I think it's an interesting topic. I don't have time for more. Okay. Intertextuality provides, I think, a focus for both what is right and what is wrong with contemporary classics. That's a bit of an outrageous statement, but it'll do. Um, conversation at lunch in Manchester. Um, 
lovely thing about the Manchester department is that because we are, we're 15, we'll be 17 in September, we're 15 at the moment, that's going across the whole of classics and ancient history. And uh, so we, 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 we do a lot of things together. We all go to the same, to, to the weekly seminar. And, and so we hear, you know, we don't, we don't have a separate literature and history and so on seminar. And we all generally have lunch together um, most days. Ancient historian complains about the way that literary chaps, that's, that's a lot, literary chaps, um, always just go on about this is a bit like that. And, we, oh, we got another seminar on this is a bit like that. Uh, <laughs> to which representative literary chap, not me, uh, replies, but this is a bit like that is just about the most interesting thing you can say about a text. So there we are. Um, as I remarked earlier, but it is very interesting, the way they come, you know, we had this series of them, you know, just one after another, people coming from uh, external speakers coming, and they were all broadly into textual re readings, which, you know, it is the dominant mode uh, still of reading uh, uh, classical literature. As I remarked before, uh, Latin studies, for once, led the way on intertextuality in the 90s, to the point that it did become the dominant mode of reading Latin, and for once we actually taught the Hellenists something. I mean, you know, it's a very rare uh, occurrence, but uh, I think, you know, we can make some claim for this. Um, culminating, of course, in the publication at the end of the, uh, uh, of, uh, the 90s, the begin just after the millennium, of the standard works on the subject for classicists. What's happened since? Well, it seems to me that the answer is both good and bad. Good from the pro-intertextual point of view, in that the practice, and still more the language, is now pervasive. Indeed, a quick Google, an open Google, you know, not, 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 not closed by other things, an open Google of intertextuality showed just how widely the language has, has, has gone into other discourses. I mean, I found things... Uh, it's 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 well. It's alive and well in the new. <laughs> I wrote this here. It's alive and well in the new millennium and living in metaphors because I, I think it is. You know, because I, I was amazed at how much I found in different discourses, film, anthropology, even medicine, using the language of intertextuality. Uh, and of course, that's all because of Latin, isn't it? That that, that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We think that. At the same time, however, I have not seen much in the way of developments in the theory. I don't think that's just because I've been so busy being an administrator in the last 15 years, um, uh, uh, though I have been very busy being an administrator. Um, I am a bit inclined, actually, to think that the theory in practice has gone backwards a bit. As the language of intertextuality has become de rigueur, so in practice the use of it has often ossified into something nearer to straightforward illusion, if not all the way back to source criticism. So, um, I, I hope it isn't invidious if I, if I mention this. I don't, I don't mean it uh, in a negative way at all. Um, if I mention the example of uh, Gesina Manuvald's uh, extremely wide-ranging and learned volume on the Roman theatre, in which a chapter called Intertextuality is actually a discussion of sources, but the language of intertextuality has moved so far out that it's used even in something which is not intertextuality um, in any, well, <laughs> in the way I wish to control the meaning of the word <laughs> and not having it moving around. 
another example. This is I, I really like this example. Um, uh, Michael Pascal's analysis of the proems of Ovid's Metamorphoses, Nonus's uh, Dionysiaca. Um, he is doubtful about direct connection uh, between Ovid and Nonus, um, even if the latter knew the former's work. Um, uh, but he wants to read the two poets together. But I quote independently of Quellenforschung or intertextual relations. Now, I thought that was very interesting because it's a good example of the misuse of the term intertextuality because an intertextual reading is precisely what he goes on to offer. I, I don't know what he thought he was saying when... Uh, when so we don't want to have Quellenforschung, we don't want to have intertextuality. We want to look at the two texts together. Hmm. It seems to me, then, that intertextuality has been a victim of its own success. Um, uh, this is uh, despite the encouragement of its high priests towards a more open understanding of the relationships between texts than that often found in traditional source criticism, including the chronological relationships and Edmund's... Um, uh, uh, I think probably didn't put those standard works of intertextuality on the handout, but you know them anyway, so it doesn't matter. Uh, talks about the reader as a locus of multiple uh, referentiality. And Don Fowler in Roman Constructions, page 130, if you wish to know, on the potential of intertextuality to escape from the tyranny of chronology. Since that time, as I say, it seems to me that intertextuality, for all its prevalence, has been unnecessarily and unhelpfully limited. When people talk in the abstract about intertextuality, they are, I think, certainly were, often happy to spread the web wider than any reconstruction of the author's intention. In practice, however, rarely do critics now admit the possibility of intertexts which would be, would be or are regarded as possible, as, sorry, as impossible as allusions. So they, people rarely accept an intertext which could not be an allusion. For example, Ovid and Imperial Greek poetry, uh, which I will consider further in a moment. I want to suggest first that the metaphor of authority looks, uh, uh, sorry, what the metaphor of authority looks like in intertextual reading and what might be some consequences for intentionality. When we say that Ovid, in the opening of the Amores, refers to the opening words of the Aeneid, we're talking about an allusion, which becomes an intertextual allusion when we expatiate on the playful, generic, and even political effects of the illusion. Now, I hope and believe that my mate Ovid, right, you know, my mate Ovid that I have lots of chats with, uh, did this quite intentionally, framing it in exactly the terms in which I describe it when introducing students to Ovidian elegy and its intertexts. He says it just as I say it. When we say this, however, we are making up a story. The kind of intention that we describe here, even if it is also real, which I kind of do, as far as I can get to saying, you know, that the real Ovid intended this, I do sort of think that, or at least I, you know, it's kind of obvious, must be. Um, uh, it's still also a manner of speaking. 
The reading I give my students on Arma Arma uh, tries to be, or thinks it is, what Ovid would have intended if he'd been a 21st century academic. The author whose actions we aim to elucidate is a construction of our interpretation, but we have constructed it in the form of what we kind of imagine to be uh, a Roman poet. That's why we don't have Ovid referring to Shakespeare, and why Ovidian intertextuality with Shakespeare is an interesting but a different kind of reading from Ovidian intertextuality with Virgil. And I think a point that I perhaps haven't made as much as I, I intended to is that I think it's very important to think that readings are for different purposes. And you, can, and you, should, you should ask the qui bono question of a reading. For, for whose benefit is this reading being done? What kind of a reading is it trying to be? And uh, from that point of view, I think, you know, uh, there is such a thing as, I mean, there are some many, a number of excellent books doing, uh, um, and Bate, obviously a good example, Ovidian intertextuality with Shakespeare, but they're doing a different kind of thing. So does it make a difference whether the allusion is really intended as well? as Perhaps it might justify us in seeing the Aeneid everywhere we look in Ovid. If we think Ovid is deliberately making this allusion, then that justifies us in seeing, the, seeing Virgil, not, maybe even not just the Aeneid, but Virgil everywhere we look in Ovid. This could be circular, however. It would be surprising if so many instances of apparent reference to Virgil's poetry throughout the Ovidian corpus were accidental from the point of view of Publius Ovidius Naso, the, the, trying to call him, you know, I sometimes call him P-O-N, um, uh, uh, but then I've constructed him, of course. Um, so I do think it's likely that most of them are intentional, um, that in whatever this means, that Ovid was conscious of them, whoever Ovid is. But on the other hand, the fact that such apparent references are so very visible to us now, around the turn of the second millennium, and I mean that by you know, 20 years before, 20 years after, by around the turn, uh, when they were not so visible at various other times in crit critical history, and we just happen to have a reading practice and an aesthetic in which intertextuality is paramount, makes it seem possible that we might be more attuned to the interplay even than Ovid was himself. Unless we think we're the best readers that Ovid's ever had which perhaps we do, but perhaps that wouldn't be right. Almost nobody would, would now want to put much limit on Ovid's relationship with Virgil, I would have thought. Um, though it is perhaps a witness to the overwhelmingly bloomy and strong father nature of our reading of Virgil that we rarely have much to say in the other direction. The case for Ovid and Greek imperial poetry, however, is rather different, in that there is massive opposition based not so much on the relative valuation of two individual poems, but on the relative valuation of two cultures. I suggest that opposition to influence, allusion, intertextuality between Ovid and imperial Greek um, poet epic is based partly on a preferential valuation of Greek literature above Roman, which derives not only from the greater antiquity of the Greek literary tradition itself and the self-conscious secondariness of Roman literary culture to its conquering captive, 
but also to romantic notions of Greek immediacy and originality over Latin derivation. Together, I suggest, sorry, it's a very long sentence, sorry, uh, with a sense of Greek superiority in modern criticism based on the perceived greater difficulty of Greek, Latin being baby stuff. Until recently, until very recently, almost everyone started Latin before Greek, mostly before the age of 13. Um, I'm interested to know how far this schema still persists. We're just starting, uh, particularly um, you know, in Manchester, we're just starting to have people who are you know, so sophisticated, really knowledgeable readers of Greek who don't know any Latin. And that's, uh, you know, that's something that, you know, until now has been almost unknown in, 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 in um, our tradition. Be that as it may, the question of Latin influence on Greek literature um, is derived in part by relative valuation and in part by a strong underlying belief that intertext intertextuality is the same thing as literary sources. Greek imperial authors are assumed to have to have no good reason to read and learn from Latin ones, even if they're able to do so, like even if they can read Latin, and so no intertextual relationship is countenanced. But Ovid could be involved in nonus in at least three ways. There could be direct and intentional allusion, a possibility which I believe is not given sufficient attention. Then there could be a relationship between the two in terms of, 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 of koine, of uh, the sort of intertextual web in antiquity through which every text is a tissue of quotations, which is kind of what intertextuality originally means, um, with all the problems about uh, saying that, given what I'm saying. Um, uh, uh, and I would say that the uh, you know, lost, lo lost Hellenistic common source is a kind of boring version of, um, uh, of that, um, uh, uh, that critical move. Then there is the wider contribution of the modern interpretive community who are very likely to have read Ovid before they've read Nonus. In fact, I think there must be very, very few people in the world, though I must, we have one uh, just finishing PhD student at the moment who might just come into this category who's actually read Nonus before Ovid. And it would seem a very, very unusual thing to do. <laughs> Reading not us at all is an unusual thing to do, to be fair. Perhaps a more easily acceptable version of this kind of relationship for poets who want to keep, sorry, for readers who want to keep poets in their proper chronological order would be to rationalise the process as something that we can learn from the comparison, just as we might also learn from the comparison of completely unconnected texts like Roman comedy and Japanese Kyogen leaving both Ovid and Nonus, uh, where these words stand, of course, for the poems, intact as independent entities. I think that's something of a mirage. But the last point is where intertextuality runs into reception. Uh, it's also why reception theory is usefully considered, I think, as an aspect of intertextuality. Another uh, example of different types of reading, readings for different purposes, uh, comes in questions of chronological distance between text and reader. I was intrigued by my reaction to Bennett's, now Bennett is on, on the handout, not that it really matters, um, uh, his, his account of new critical refusal to pay any attention even to glaring biographical allusions in Eliot's 
the wasteland. Uh, apparently, uh, according, according to this, um, according to him, many scholars, uh, new critical scholars, were utterly un unwilling to see any aspect of Eliot's life, even terribly known things like, uh, um, it was about Margate was, was, was the point, any aspect of Eliot's life, even when they were kind of shouting at you from the poem, because we don't do that, because we absolutely must not have anything to do with something that we know independently. Um, now, I, uh, so, as he puts it like this, um, led critics to perform acts of extraordinary self-denial in the name of a scrupulous textualism. I'd rather like that. Um, I think we classical critics are never in the happy position of needing to perform, uh, or even unhappy position, needing to perform such acts of restraint, having so very little extra textual information about our poets anyway. Um, but this led me to think that there are some ways in which the reading of a modern author requires different behaviours, perhaps, or even different theoretical positions from the reading of ancient authors. I might even say that there is a difference between reading a newly discovered ancient author and one with a continuous tradition. Different again is the more common case of the newly discovered addition to a fragmentary text. Uh, I mean, imagine what would happen if we suddenly got the whole of Gallus and um, you know, what would happen to the, 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 the constructed Gallus. It would be a lot of fun. Um, but because in that case, there would be a tradition of reading based on extrapolation from existing fragments and other sources, which would have to be revised when the new fragment turns up. That will almost certainly not result in the same reading as would have come about <coughs> if there had been a continuous tradition. The revised one won't be the same as what would have happened if we'd had the, the, the full text all the way through. Uh, Martindale's strictures about reading in the Western cultural tradition, I think, should be remembered here. Right. The last section that I would uh, like to uh, explore a little bit is about what I'm calling the situated readings. The biggest critical moves in the last 20 years or so seem to be in various forms of situated reading. So, in addition to gender, also the post-colonial and then the, the really recent one, the eco-critical, the post-human uh, kinds of readings. I would suggest that it's reasonable to see these types of readings as in some degree of continuity with earlier Marxist and psychoanalytical approaches to texts. I would say these are all what I want to call situated readings and are very different from formalist readings. Indeed, it could well be that part of the reason that critics very recently I don't think the chronology doesn't quite work for this, but I think it's still w a, a, an idea that's worth exploring. Part of the reason why we communally started to get uncomfortable about the death of the author, it's partly because we weren't actually reading it carefully enough, but, but also partly because of the rise of the situated readings. Um, well, be that as it may, I don't, classics has never in general had much sympathy for the new critical attempt entirely to separate the text from its context of course. Uh, and as a result, it was, was and is to quick to pick up on new historicist approaches, um, which also may have a tendency towards a comforting affirmation of originary authority. To put it simply, 
A stress on historical context can easily go with a belief in authors rather than readers, which is much tidier, or might be much tidier. It's worth noting, however, although I can't not explore this in any detail today, that there is potentially a tension between two major moves in classics over recent decades, which is historicism and reception. I think perhaps it isn't a tension. Perhaps it's just that we have to remember readings for purposes, that they're different kinds of readings. There isn't only one way of reading. Among the most recent are the eco-critical and post-human ways of reading, uh, very explicitly readings for a purpose. Readings for a purpose that, and the purpose arises from the contemporary society quite, uh, quite explicitly, de deriving from millennial social, scientific and cultural developments. Such readings are clearly not attempts to get at original intentions or even original readers' responses. So of necessity, they say that reading is in the eye of the beholder, the contemporary beholder, contemporary to us, that is, undertaken from the point of view of the millennial reader, uh, possibly even as part of a desire to address a real-life contemporary social problem, if only by the back door. Way back in 1997... I didn't check that date, I think it's 1997, in the Cambridge Companion um, to Virgil, uh, Charles Martindale had a go at an eco-critical uh, reading of the eclogues, which I don't think actually did make a huge impression, certainly nothing like the impression made by his magnificent redeeming the text. Uh, perhaps the time might have come for another go. Uh, but as regards post-human, now, I'm personally quite sceptical about uh, cyborgs and the humanness of artificial intelligence, though perhaps the principle will put me right on that. Um, but I do think there might be mileage in an overtly post-human reading of the metamorphoses with its interest in uh, human-animal hybrids, the effects on human consciousness of animal bodies, you know, most, most notably, of course, Acteon, when he, he, he not only runs fast, but he thinks, oh, goodness me, why am I so scared? because he's scared because he's turned into, he's turned into a, a stag. So um, uh, uh, his, his body is affecting his, his emotional fear. And, of course, the radical instability of any kind of personal identity. But what I'm concerned with now is not what the post-human readings might do, but the indirect interest for what they say about the theory of reading. They are dependent on millennial science and millennial social concerns, and are constructed in a way that could not possibly have been conceived by their original authors and readers, though I suspect that they too slip into the metaphor of authority, as if Ovid could have somehow foreseen cyborgs. I suspect also that there, if I may say this, that there is a risk in the cognitive turn to critical study, which I know a number of people here are interested, um, uh, of another sort of metaphor of authority, uh, one in which scientific, truth with scare quotes, um, is granted or even assumed automatically to have an irrefutable degree of authority to legislate about the subjective experience of reading. That's a bit of a problem that I'm finding with philosophy in the flesh, is that it seems to be saying, this is proven, this is proven by science, and therefore you lot can't uh, question it. 
if talking about science, sorry, cyborgs and artificial intelligence is clearly addressing an ancient text with a fundamentally different mindset from that of its author, it's probably also true, though to a lesser extent, about the identity politics readings, gender, sexuality, race, post-colonialism, and so on. Things do get rather more muddied, however, when we start thinking about aspects of identity which are, at least at a simplistic level, universal for anatomically modern humans. Um, here the pull of origins um, tends to affect things again. The situation is made even more complicated by the fact that identity politics could clearly be about the author or clearly about the reader, could be either, about the social situation of the present or of 2,000 years ago. I want to say something very briefly, very briefly now, about, um, uh, about uh, sort of feminist uh, reading. Um, even, if I'm, even though, if I'm not wrong, the critical balance is currently towards the theoretical view that feminist readings, as their names suggest, sit with the reader more than with the author, Nonetheless, if we look at what people actually say, it doesn't seem as though this is what they think they are doing. They think they're doing something much closer to reconstructing an ancient reading, if not the actual reading of the author himself, as it usually is. The dissonance caused by the clash between modern readings and a desire for originary authors is audible in the standard question as to whether Euripides or Ovid is a misogynist or a proto-feminist. If we could resist that pull, I would suggest we could bring theory and practice better into line with each other. I'll take uh, the example of a paper of mine which was recently published in the collection of essays by the Eugesta group. Uh, my point in this paper is that Virgil does something sophisticated and modern with the image of the warrior woman uh, moving away from the standard reification of the warrior woman as an Amazon, this despite the association between Camilla and the Amazon woman uh, that is indeed present in the text and is seized upon by readers, but which is actually closer to the objectifying gaze of Aeneas on the Amazon breast represented on the Temple of Juno than it is to the totality of the representation of warrior women in the epic. By contrast, I argue, the real exact details of this, this argument doesn't quite, much, quite matter. By contrast, I argue, Ovid returns the representation of warrior women to the chauvinist norm from which it never recovers in ancient epic. Now, I am pretty sure that neither Virgil nor Ovid realised this, would have realised or certainly couldn't have articulated uh, what they're doing, but it's there in the author, in the text, and the author is a convenient fiction for it. An easier thing to be would be to say that it's Virgil who's the proto-feminist, actually, not Ovid. But I'm only willing to go that far, insofar as Virgil and Ovid are figurative. It's a common trope, then, of criticism to use a uh, constructed author in order to give authority to the reading we offer. We do this even when we subscribe to the situatedness of reading and the necessity of multiple readings. The poem was intended by the author to mean something. His meaning, which may or may not have been effectively communicated to any reader, is one element in the process of interpretation. One element, but not the totality. 
happily for us. Uncovering Ovid's intention is impossible, and more importantly, if it were possible, it would already have been done. As, indeed, Don said, it would be a mistake to think that our critical categories are eternal. If there is a single fixed meaning of any Latin poet, it would be absurd to think that we now are in a better position to uncover it than readers at any other period of time. Indeed, it would be an act of extraordinary arrogance. Happily, however, we don't really think there is a stable meaning. Otherwise, we would be out of a job. Thank <laughs> you.